Thank you for joining the McCain Institute's Authors and Insights Book Talk series, a series of discussions with authors of important, newly released books on American politics, policy, and leadership. My husband fought his whole life to promote American character-driven leadership and democracy to the public, and it's incredibly important today to carry that legacy forward by any means possible. Hello and welcome, uh, or welcome back if you joined us yesterday. I'm David Kramer at Florida International University's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs and want to welcome you to State of the World 2021 for day two, where we have a terrific lineup uh, here today. And kicking us off is going to be a book discussion uh, that will be led by our moderator, but also our partner in this conference, uh, Mark Green, who's executive director of the McCain Institute, who joined us yesterday for a fascinating conversation with Secretary of State right Madeleine Albright. And then uh, we'll be leading the discussion here today with two old friends of mine, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. So, Mark, let me turn it over to you. And thanks very much. Great. Thank you, David. It's uh, great to be with you. Great to be part of the conference. And uh, having been a participant yesterday, I'm awfully pleased with uh, the response that we're all getting. So uh, first off, we're going to have a discussion for about a half an hour, and then I want to take questions from those of you who are watching. Use the Q&A function uh, that you have with Zoom. So uh, this morning, Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and the political analyst for MSNBC. Susan Glasser is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a global analyst for CNN. Their first assignment as a married couple was as the Washington Bureau Chiefs in Moscow. That led to their book, Kremlin Rising. Their latest collaboration is The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. It has received rave reviews, and let me add my own voice of praise. Now, as I had in our previous discussion indicated, this is not a short book, and yet there is not one page that I would drop. Every Every single page adds to the story, and a remarkable story it is. So, Peter, Susan, thank you for joining us this morning, and congratulations on the success of, of this work, of this book. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be with you, and congratulations to you on your new uh, assignment as head of the, the Wilson Center, which is a wonderful, wonderful Washington institution. Where this book was well, partly written, <laughs> yeah. as Jane Harmer would want us to tell you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, great. Uh, thank you. You're, you're very kind. So uh, our book. So the book basically begins and ends with the same question. Will James Baker endorse, support, vote for Donald J. Trump? How does it turn out? And what does his sort of inner turmoil in, in thinking about that question, what does that say about James Baker, his times and his approach? Well, you know, it's a great question. You're right. We did begin and end it. I don't want to spoil the ending, but what's really fascinating about this question is Susan and I started this book seven years before it was published, 2013, back during the Obama era. So it was not really a Trump-related book, but even then Washington felt broken in so many important ways. And we thought that the Jim Baker story told us a couple of things. One, it told us about his own remarkable life as White House Chief of Staff of two presidents, as the leader of five presidential campaigns, Secretary of Treasury, and then, of course, Secretary of State at the end of the Cold War. But we also thought his story told us a story about Washington and how much had changed, how things used to work and how things work today. 
And that only became more so with the rise of, of Donald Trump. And as Trump began to appear on the horizon, our conversations with Baker increasingly, of course, turned to that subject because he was so anathema to everything we think Baker stood for, both ideologically in terms of how he thinks of republicanism and also just the way he viewed public service and government. And yet, despite that, Baker had this, you know, we watched him struggle with this. He, he, he didn't particularly think much of Trump. He used the words crazy to describe him. He called him nuts. Um, he despised some of the things he had done to dismantle traditional republicanism. And he just, he just obviously has no truck for the, the, the false statements and the, and the, you know, the invective and nastiness. And, he, and, and yet he couldn't ever fully break from him. He voted for him in 2016, even though his best friend, George Bush, didn't vote for him. And he did end up voting for him again in 2020. And we asked that question repeatedly, why would you do that, given that he doesn't really particularly seem your kind of guy? And the answer basically, I think, is it's a lot about our, our tribal nature today. We are, you know, an us and them moment in society. You're either a Republican or you're not. And he told us at one point, I'm a Republican, even if my party has left. And so I think that that's a parable for the modern Republican Party and a lot of established Republicans who end up uh, sticking with Trump over these last four years, even though they don't particularly like him. And yet he began his career as a Democrat. Well, that's right. In a way, again, to this point about the arc of the modern Republican Party, the Republican Party began uh, in uh, you know, its transition really at the time that Jim Baker began uh, uh, the switch from being a sort of indifferent at best Southern Democrat from a very conservative family. Uh, he doesn't really remember much about politics growing up except that his father passionately hated FDR. Uh, I think uh, they were sort of Texas aristocracy and, and saw uh, FDR as sort of a class traitor. Uh, but other than that, really, the family motto was to stay out of po politics. So it wasn't so much even that Baker was a Democrat as that he was a, a non-participant in public life. And his family ethos really was work hard and stay out of politics, going back to his, he is the son, grandson, and great-grandson of uh, prominent Texas attorneys who really were more than lawyers. They were, you know, in effect, uh, founders and builders of the city of Houston. And, you know, the family had really a strong aversion to anything that smacked of politics. And, you know, there's a fantastic story when he finally did uh, become Secretary of State uh, 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 in the administration of his close friend from the Houston Country Club, George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, his mother at this point is still alive. She's in her late 90s. She wasn't able to travel up to Washington. And he calls her up on the phone and she says, well, you know, Jimmy, uh, tell me what that job is again you have. And he says, well, mom, you know, Secretary of State. And she says, of the whole United States. And he says, yes, mom, of the whole United States. And she says, well, well, I guess it's probably a good thing your father isn't alive. He really wouldn't have approved of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 and you point to something else that comes through in the book. It, you get the question over and over again, what was Baker's ideology? So you, you understood the different challenges that he took on, often on behalf, obviously, of, of other people. But what's Baker's ideology? What drives him? What is his passion in terms of political ideology? Yeah, I think that Baker is a conservative. I mean, he is a Texas conservative, but it's not an ideology. Uh, he doesn't fall on a sword on ideology when it comes to doing things, right? So as a, as a White House official, as a cabinet secretary, his first priority was to get things done. And he told us again and again, 
that that's what Reagan wanted him to do. When he was Reagan's chief of staff, even though Reagan, of course, we think of as an icon of the conservative movement, the Reagan himself is more of a pragmatist than people today would like to imagine to have been. And that, in fact, Reagan said over and over, I'd rather get 80% of what I'm after rather than fly my flag, you know, jumping over the cliff. And that was Baker's approach, too. So he would, you know, he would do deals with Democrats on Social Security, on the tax code, on foreign policy, because it was more important to him to get things done than to stand on some sort of false notion of ideological purity. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's something else, you, you touch upon those Reagan days, and I was struck by some of the uh, eerie similarities to the earliest days of Trump in the sense that you had a number of outsiders, people who weren't from Washington or weren't from, from government at all, a, a difference being in the Reagan days, uh, Reagan understood he needed a baker. Yes. And so Baker was the guy that sort of managed things and, and kept people uh, perhaps at arm's length who could have taken things off the rails. We didn't see a parallel uh, in the early days and the, the following months of the Trump administration. So that to me seemed to be parallels, but then a complete divergence. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because actually I think that that's a really important point. First of all, it goes to your first question, why did... Uh, Jim Baker very, very reluctantly choose to, to vote for Trump the first time around. And I think part of the explanation is his experience with Reagan. He made this analogy to me once in a conversation uh, that we had right after, like a couple weeks after the inauguration of Trump. Uh, it was his first interview after that. And he said, well, yeah, I remember when Reagan came up and he was an outsider and we were so terrified a nuclear war was going to happen or something. And in, in effect, it worked out okay. And I think that his notion was that, first of all, that the office of the president of the United States would actually have an influence on the president and uh, that he, Trump, would want to succeed in that office. And so I think it was almost the failed analogizing between these two, in the end, very different outsiders uh, that might have been responsible for why Baker and some other Republicans thought things would work out better with Trump than they ultimately did. So that, I think that's one important point. But definitely, the Reagan White House was an extraordinary, almost a cesspool of intrigue and backbiting uh, and uh, internecine warfare. And Baker, you know, was right in the middle of it. And it, you know, Peter actually got a text from one a senior former Trump official said, "I'm reading your book. It sounds an awful lot like what I remember of our Trump White House, except." And this was, again, someone who worked for Trump, except that Baker was much more competent. And so that's one thing. And I do think fundamentally, what's so actually offensive in a way is the comparison between Reagan and Trump because they were basically such fundamentally different people. And that is actually the reason that the two White Houses were so different in the end. They reflected the personalities, the liabilities uh, of the two leaders. And Donald Trump was never going to empower a Jim Baker to succeed, which is why whenever Peter and I get these questions, uh, who could be uh, you know, Jim Baker in the Trump era? The answer is no one, because Donald Trump, as you know, as we all know, uh, by this point, wants to be at the center uh, of all the action. That's why he had four national security advisors, more than anyone since the position was created, four chiefs of staff, firing people so often by the end of his administration. Uh, no one even knew who was in what job because fundamentally it didn't really matter. That, that's just a complete opposite 
approach in many ways because the person was different. Yeah, and it, it, it seems to me that another way of thinking of it is that Donald Trump did have a chief of staff himself, right? And so he nudged aside anybody else who, who wanted to play that role. And perhaps the difference was that, that Reagan, who you know, we conservatives think of in big picture aspirational ways, but he also had a certain humility and realized what he couldn't do and that he couldn't be chief of staff and that he had to have somebody who could implement and, and guide and take care of those details and thus James A. Baker III. Well, the right, people forget while, you know, the, the analogy that Trump, that uh, Baker and some others made about Trump and Reagan was that they were both sort of entertainers, right? They were both outsiders. They were both people who kind of had a showmanship quality to them. And that's the analogy. But the difference was that Reagan has served two terms as governor of the largest state. He'd actually run something in government. He knew how government worked by that point. Not Washington, but he knew how government worked. And he was serious about it. And I think that the other thing is, um, you're right. He did understand his own, you know, strengths and 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 weaknesses. And he and it spoke amazingly to Reagan that he would pick somebody for his chief of staff who would run not one but two campaigns against him. He uh, Baker, of course, ran Ford in '76 when they beat Reagan at the ticket convention, and Bush in 1980 when they lost the primaries. And I think that Reagan understood something about Baker and what he needed that Trump never did. Well, and not to belabor this too much, but also just even as entertainers, quote unquote. Uh, the role that Donald Trump played as an entertainer was himself. <laughs> the role that Ronald Reagan played was <laughs> that of other people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Reagan was, in the end, also, he was the ideologue that Baker wasn't, right? Actually, you know, if you read other portraits of Reagan, it's very clear, you know, he was wired uh, with the ideology of the Reagan revolution. So he wasn't looking to hire that in Baker. What he was looking to hire was somebody who was an executor and an implementer. Uh, and again, you know, Trump's ideology was himself. And one last thing, Trump always ran, <laughs> sorry, sorry, we're getting going on this, but Trump yeah. never ran anything other than the Trump organization, yes. which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Trump. That's right. There were no shareholders, there was no board, there was never a constituency that he had to answer to. It was always his own, you know, whims on the 26th floor of Trump Tower. Whereas Reagan, again, had built constituencies, not just as governor for eight years, but also as president of the Screen Actors Guild and in other roles over the years. Yeah, you know, it, it's something else that came through to me in the book. So there's um, sort of um, perhaps some, some inner turmoil for uh, James Baker in how he would be seen. So, you know, he was referred to as the fixer and the velvet hammer and so on and so forth. And you could see he kind of chafes against that a little bit. But what I saw in how Baker took on his role was much more akin to an experience that I had on a very low level as an assistant whip in the House of Representatives. I love being an assistant whip. It was a great training ground because it forced you with each person with whom you're working to understand their district what they could do, what they couldn't do when they were BSing you on, on talking about an issue or a vote, and you had to craft something that appealed to them. And it seems to me that that was Baker's skill, not just fixing a problem, but his ability to understand the various levers of politics and what he could do, but always for that outcome, whether it be a Reagan-esque outcome, or in the case of his very good friend, George H.W. Bush, on some of the challenges that, that came up during their administration. I think that is a great insight. Uh, fundamentally, Baker applied a similar skill set, whether it was to working with 
the Soviets on arms control, or it was working with Republicans and Democrats on tax reform uh, in, in 1986. And, uh, you know, look, as Treasury Secretary, it wasn't that he brought a big background in economics to the table. In fact, he'd only had a single economics course at Princeton and probably didn't do all too well at that. Uh, so really, you know, Baker Skelton, I do think fundamentally was politics. Now that was uh, a dirty word in his family, as I've said, so part of his allergy with that. I think part of it was that he saw politics from his own experience as a rather grubby business. One thing to remember about Baker's really long and extraordinary portfolio was that it was his, his formative experience in politics uh, came in uh, the 1976 contested convention when uh, through an unlikely series of circumstances uh, at, at the age of 45, by the way, it was an extremely successful mid-career switch. At the age of 45, he finds himself suddenly uh, the delegate counter for the incumbent president of the United States in what would turn out to be the final contested convention at the floor uh, uh, in U.S. history. And that was very grubby business. Uh, you know, people were outright asking for, you know, favors and demanding Oval Office meetings of Jerry Ford and seats at uh, state dinners with Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, this was, I think, unseemly to Baker. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that was, you know, real uh, uh, privilege to us in doing this biography was the opportunity to have unfettered access to his papers, both at Princeton and Rice University. And, you know, he kept a file all these years of, uh, you know, things that people had asked him that he considered to be inappropriate or unethical or just, you know, problematic. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I think, something that did color his view of politics in the narrow sense, which is ironic because he termed his own uh, memoir of his time as Secretary of State, The Politics of Diplomacy. And I do think that in a way, you know, what he was, he wasn't making a big contribution to the, the theory of international relations. What he was is an exceptionally skilled practitioner uh, of the art of making it happen. And so I think that politics of diplomacy title was, was really a well-founded one for him. Uh, and as we've been talking, uh, obviously for all those who are, are listening, it's a reminder, you know, we, we tend to focus on Baker's accomplishments by talking about the offices he held. And of course, that doesn't begin to do justice. It was the causes and the challenges that he was in the midst of from, you know, Secretary of State, the end of the Cold War, the fall of the wall, building that remarkable coalition to take on Saddam Hussein, you know, China, Russia, Egypt, Syria, all being part to different degrees of that coalition. And so as we talk about Baker, it's not the titles, it really is the outcomes, which were extraordinary. Well, I think it's exactly right. It's a good reminder to us because a lot of people have good titles in Washington, but don't you know leave office without having gotten very much done. Uh, through, maybe through no fault of their own or maybe because of the times they happen to live in. But Baker was Secretary of State, just to focus on that, an extraordinary you know, pivot point in world history, right? Probably in some ways the most extraordinary three or four years in foreign affairs of our lifetime, or at least recent, uh, last two generations, let's say. And it wasn't that he was the revolutionary, right? He didn't right. create revolution in Russia or Eastern Europe. He didn't create the change that was happening. But what he did do was he helped marshal it, right? He helped channel it toward a constructive and peaceful ending in the case of the fall of communism and the fall of the, of the, of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I mean, think about that. It was not inevitable 
that the Soviet Union would go away and that Eastern Europe would be freed from the shackles of Moscow without violence, without significant violence. And yet that's what happened, partly because of Bush and Baker. And I think Germany is the case study in the, um, you know, his, his particular diplomacy, right? Being able to bring together these two Germanys, he didn't have to just negotiate between two Germanys or negotiate with the Soviet Union. He had to negotiate with the British and the French because Margaret Thatcher and Francois Mitterrand weren't thrilled about the idea of a reunited Germany either for good reason after two wars in the last century. Remember, I think the, the saying at the time was, we love Germany so much, let's have two of them. But, you know, he managed to figure that out and in fact negotiate between two different West German factions, which held one of which held the chancellorship and the other held the foreign ministry at that particular time. And he did it in such a way that kept Germany uh, NATO without having alienated the conservatives in Moscow who could have you know, resisted this and even toppled Mikhail Gorbachev at the time. Remember, the Soviets still had 300,000 troops in East Germany at that time. They could have stopped it if they wanted to. And he did it in time before the invasion of Kuwait that would have changed in some ways the dynamics in which he was negotiating. So I think that was a great case study of, of, of action uh, resulting in an outcome. When I was uh, at the International Republican Institute, one of our board members was Brent Scowcroft. And I went to visit General Scowcroft um, to talk to him. One of the questions I asked him is what advice he had for the, the newer, younger members of the International Republican Institute and those going into foreign policy. He said something interesting to me. He said, you know, uh, we have a tendency to look back on those days that you just described and think that it was inevitable, right? That the the wall was going to fall, Germany was going to be reunified. And he said to me, it wasn't inevitable. It wasn't easy and it was very often in doubt. So do, do you think that that uh, James Baker is able to look back on those days with a sense of pride and understand the role that he played? Or, you know, there's so many different things that he did does he truly appreciate the difference that he made in, in those pivotal moments and how different things would be if he had not gotten into that grubby game of politics? You know, that is a great and important observation. I do think that that was, for Peter and I, our original interest in many ways in doing the book was because of this period of the end of the Cold War, having spent uh, four years in Moscow in the former Soviet Union, uh, basically just a decade after these events, uh, uh, during the period when Vladimir Putin came to power. Um, by the way, an example of the alternate course that could have been taken at any moment in time uh, preceding it. And, uh, you know, Baker, in particular, that diplomacy surrounding uh, the reunification of Germany, when he and Bush and Scowcroft came into office in uh, 1989, the diplomats at the State Department prepared a famous memo uh, uh, that was on the question of German unification. And the conclusion that the authors very reluctantly came to was, forget it, it's a pipe dream, it's a fantasy, it's not gonna happen uh, in our lifetime. And uh, there were a few dissenting voices, but just a few. And when November 9th, 1989 happened, uh, there was no playbook for what came after it. There was no plan in effect. And it all had to be done on the fly and in a very, very rapid way. Now, interestingly, you know, it's often said that that team of Scowcroft, Bush, Baker, and Dick Cheney at uh, the Defense Department 
was you know, probably the gold standard of national security and foreign policy teams in the sense of both how they work together and how Scowcroft as national security advisor managed to harmonize the often disharmonious uh, bureaucratically feuding uh, apparatus of the U.S. state. And, you know, I think Scowcroft uh, genuinely is, is credited with that. But of course, we all, we've seen over and over again, people can talk about the Scowcroft model. They talk about, I'm going to run my NSC just like that. It's not actually about the process of the meetings that you hold and, you know, who's invited to what, uh, right? It's not just about having breakfast once a week with your counterparts. Uh, because in the end, it was about that group of people, their ability uh, to work together. And interestingly, German unification is probably an example where Baker, who was extremely cautious as a general principal, Margaret Tutwiler, who was one of his absolute closest aides all the way from uh, you know, being Reagan, White House, all the way through to Secretary of State, she called him Mr. Caution. Uh, and yet on German unification, when he understood and sensed the importance of this deal, and he was immersed in it uh, in a tactile way, uh, even more than Scowcroft and Bush. That was the moment when Baker really pushed that relationship with Scowcroft and uh, Bush. And I found that to be very interesting, that uh, he was the one, the cautious one normally, who really said, you know, this is it, we have to go for it. He came up uh, and his, with the diplomats at the State Department with this formula of how to incorporate the four victorious World War II powers, but also the two um, Germanys. And this was the moment when Baker basically pushed aside Scowcroft and Bush and said, I've got this one, boys. Uh, and so I do think to your question that he understands that that's his sort of play for history. Interesting. So uh, what comes through in the book is that for much of his career, he wanted to be Secretary of State. And of course, it eventually happens. Uh, other parts of his career, his life, did he want to be president? Sounds like he did. Certainly some others wanted him to be president or run for president. Does he have a sense that, A, um, is there a, a sense of lack of fulfillment on that? And B, does he realize that even if he wasn't president, he may have been prime minister for these <laughs> few moments? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. We were going through these files that Susan mentioned at Princeton. And we came across a, a folder from his time as Secretary of Treasury in which he had saved dozens of letters that people had written him saying, you ought to be president. You ought to run for president. This is back in the 1980s when he was still working for Reagan. And I thought that was a really eye-opening discovery because it said this is somebody who not only thought about it, he saved these letters and put them in his archives years later. He didn't do that because he dismissed it out of hand. And he did think about it, obviously. In 19, he thought about running in 1996. Uh, I think anybody like him who had been in the presence of the Oval Office and the White House for so long gets that feeling like, I could do this. I, you know, I, These guys are mortal and human. I, I'm as good as they are, if not better. But we asked him about that during one of our interviews. Why didn't you run, sir, in 1996? And I have to say, if you're a biographer, I've learned the lesson. Try to interview your subject with their spouse if they're uh, available, because they are the truth tellers. And his answer was, well... I had been at the top of the game for you know all these years. I was tired. I was exhausted at that point. And his wife jumps in, and Susan Baker, who's wonderful, she says, well, honey, she says, the party had begun moving on. You were too liberal for them. And by that, he, she meant not that he was literally a liberal, but that the party of Gingrich, which had arisen in 1994, was different than the party of Reagan and Bush that Baker had so mastered. 
and that Baker was seen too much as a compromiser. It was seen too much as a pragmatist. And that was an era when that was no longer valued the same way. And I think that's right. There wasn't traction for him to run in 1996. And he's a clever enough guy to know that that was the case. And I think the truth is he wouldn't have enjoyed running for president. He would have enjoyed being president. Yeah. Uh, I could go on for a long time, but we're going to turn to uh, audience questions. But as we do, one question, if you could respond, we have so many uh, students of journalism and aspiring journalists that are listening in. Your advice to them. Uh, you've obviously had a front row seat to an awful lot uh, uh, written on so many different things. What advice do you have for those entering the field of journalism? <laughs> well, uh, apologize to your parents, <laughs> but <laughs> look, it's, 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 we're so lucky because the world is constantly reinventing itself. There's no such thing as stupid questions. And in an age where it seems like we're surfeited with every amount of information, so much of it is bogus or untrue or partial or misleading. Uh, you know, I just, I think that uh, as much as people write and think about the crisis, which is genuine in, in the business model of journalism, I, it seems like there has never been a more uh, important and even foundational moment for journalism in America. Peter and I spent four years living, as I said, in the former Soviet Union. Do you, I never ever thought in my life that we would return home to the United States to find the President of the United States calling journalists enemies of the people, uh, which by the way is the term vrag naroda in Russian, uh, by which uh, millions and millions of people were sentenced to the gulag in the Soviet Union during the, the Stalinist era. So guess what? It matters, folks. And I think the last four years have been an incredible example of why it matters. We're back to first principles in this country. We're so divided. And uh, you know this this is such an important job. And it's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful job, too. So I would say good luck to all the students who are listening. But it's worth doing, is your message. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Uh, so uh, just as we get going, a question. Um, obviously, Donald Trump, known for the art of the deal and, and saw himself, sees himself as a deal maker. And yet when you take a look at outcomes, it was actually uh, James Baker that was the deal maker. But did they view deals differently? Uh, <laughs> in, in the Trump administration was a transactional one -off, series of one offs. And with Baker, did he view uh, doing a deal as more building commerce? In other words, a relationship that you could go back to. Is that the principal difference? Yeah, I think that is a principal difference. I think it's a very smart insight. And I think obviously the eras were different as Susan was saying earlier. But you did, you had Baker who in 1983 sits down with Tip O'Neill, the Democratic Speaker of the House and, and cuts a deal to put Social Security on a firmer footing for years. It's the last time that's happened on a bipartisan basis. He does it again in 1986 with Dan Rosenkowski and the Democrats to rewrite the tax code from top to bottom. Uh, again, the last time that's happened on a bipartisan basis. One month after eviscerating Michael Dukakis in the 1988 election, I mean, Baker was a ruthless partisan when it came to elections. He was no softy. But one month after that election, he's in the apartment at the Watergate of Bob Strauss, the former Democratic National Committee chairman's having dinner with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House, to figure out a way to make the Contra War go away, a process that also uh, had Baker work with Jimmy Carter. So Baker didn't sit there and think, I'm just going to work with my party and forget the other side and ram through what I can. I'm going to do what we can to get the other party to buy in. Now, why did he do that? First of all, of course, 
During the 12 years of Reagan and Bush, he had no choice. The Democrats had the House the entire time, and they had the Senate half the time. But I think also Baker understood that if you wanted something to last, something that was enduring, it was better to have bipartisan buy-in. Why did he tell George H.W. Bush to go to Congress to get permission to go to war against Saddam Hussein? Not because he thought constitutionally he had to necessarily, but because he thought it would be better to have bipartisan buy-in, especially if things went wrong. <laughs> and I think that's something that Trump never really understood. And I think the times, you know, it's not just Trump, of course, I think these times are pulling us apart in that way. I mean, both Democrats and Republicans these days see it as, you know, uh, uh, disadvantageous to do compromise. And I think that's a, a real problem for the, for the country right now. So, uh, Susan, we've got a question here that puts you a bit on the spot. Uh, said that you did a, a very uh, uh, a marvelous profile of uh, Pompeo about a year ago. How would you compare and contrast Pompeo and Secretary of State James A. Baker III? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, Baker would say it's always advantageous to be compared to somebody who uh, is not known for doing a good job. And the truth is, is that they were, uh, might have had the same job title, but what they did was so completely different from each other, it's frankly hard even to compare it. In part, of course, because the moment uh, and the in time was different, the U.S. role in the world was different. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, Pompeo will be remembered as one of the worst and most, certainly most politicized secretaries of state we've had in our history. This is a guy who addressed the Republican National Convention from Jerusalem, uh, you know, who uh, seemed to govern by hashtag uh, and, uh, you know, sort of statements that were aimed at this audience of one, the, the boss in the White House. And, you know, the, the palpable insecurity of the entire Trump administration, because as we were saying earlier, all stars revolved around, uh, you know, this overweening and overwhelming son of Donald Trump, right? It was interesting that in the very first year before Pompeo even became Secretary of State, Trump was asked actually about all the vacancies at the State Department. And that's when he gave his very revealing quote, I'm the only one that matters, which, you know, could have been almost like the slogan for his entire administration, right? Uh, but it's interesting that it came in the context of the State Department. Uh, you know, Pompeo was essentially a backbencher Republican congressman with not a lot of experience on Capitol Hill. He'd never even shared a subcommittee, never mind a full committee. He, his major experience was basically going on Fox News and talking about the endless series of Benghazi investigations of Hillary Clinton. And so I think he brought that uh, experience on Capitol Hill, which was of the hyper-politicized sort of new House Republican conference. And he actually just applied that model uh, into the sort of toxic court politics of the Trump administration. His, his best known thing, I think, will be the fact that he uh, insisted on branding himself as the secretary of hashtag swagger at, at the State Department. And diplomats, of course, are not really known for that. Uh, it seemed to be an effort to rebrand diplomacy as sort of George Patton the movie, which is uh, Donald Trump's favorite movie. And, you know, Baker, uh, was really just the opposite of that in every way. But I'll just, one final point on how different American statecraft is today versus then. Uh, Baker's relentless consultations with our allies and partners. Uh, this is something that really leapt out at us when we re-examined this period of the end of the Cold War. It wasn't just that he was in constant contact with Brent Scowcroft and uh, George Bush back in the White House. Uh, Baker would literally, he would fly to Moscow for a meeting. 
And on the way there, he would stop in Brussels or in uh, Germany and consult with allied leaders. He would say, here's what I'm gonna talk about here. What do you think? What's your latest intelligence uh, from Moscow? He would go to Russia. He would have the meeting with Gorbachev, Shevardnadze. Then he would fly back and he would stop in Brussels on the way back and he would say, here's what happened. Here's what I think we should do next. What do you think? What do you think? This was a, came naturally to him, right? He didn't spend a career doing this. And think about how our Secretary of State had to cancel his final meeting in Brussels, the final trip of the Trump administration, because he was not welcome in Brussels and they wouldn't meet with him. I think that tells you everything about the difference between these two. Uh, I'm struck by in the book, the number of times he used fishing or hunting as a vehicle for uh, diplomacy, something we don't see quite as much uh, these days. So uh, our uh, references to journalism lit up a number of viewers. One uh, question that was put forward is, it says that uh, our major media houses, our leading media houses are moving towards homogeneity and point of view. Is that a problem? And what needs to be done to combat that if the, in the role of journalism in modern politics and in global affairs? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that, you know, the truth is, I think that um, I think that one thing that we have now that we didn't have back in the Baker era is a, is a much broader marketplace of ideas, a much broader array of possible media sources that you can turn to depending on your point of view and what you're looking for than we ever had uh, in the Reagan and Bush eras. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing. I think it's the, the, the consequence of a fragmented fragmentation of the media means that some people only go to media that agrees with their preconceived notion, whether you're on the left or the right. And therefore, we're not starting from the same fact set anymore. We actually have different, you know, basis for the conversation that we're having than we used to have in the old days. But if you're looking for something different than what you're getting in my newspaper or some other newspapers, there's a place to find it. There's no shortage right now of very, uh, often very good, uh, uh, you know, organizations or commentary outlets for all sorts of different points of view. So I'm, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about how we at least get people depending, regardless of ideology, how we get people on the same fact basis so that we can have an argument about what to do, at least starting from the same vantage point of, of, of you know, uh, references. So a um, couple of other questions in, in that same general area. Uh, what do we need to do to rebuild trust in journalism? And secondly, uh, what do we need to do to strengthen the role of community-based journalism in debate and discussion? Well, uh, just to the latter one, I, I do think that is the, the major crisis right now in American journalism is the, the absolute um, you know, toppling of uh, important state and local based uh, news organizations. And, you know, you see that in the course of the pandemic, how incredibly important it is to have accountability at every level of government, to have transparency. And I, I really fear that that's exactly what we're losing. Uh, you know, we have, especially because of the disruptions and the, the, you know, the spectacle of national politics in the last few years, uh, we have uh, extensive, if not endless, coverage uh, at, the, at the national level and out of Washington 
but at, at the same time, you have uh, news organizations that have covered state capitals for uh, decades, if not for centuries, going out of business at an alarming rate. So I'm extremely concerned about that. You do see some promising new uh, nonprofit startups uh, that are aiming to fill that void, uh, but I fear that it's too slow. And again, what I would say from the last few years, uh, the takeaway that applies both to politics and to journalism is don't take the president or the recent past for granted. Uh, you know, what we've learned is that uh, uh, what we universalized as sort of the American way is not, and it's up to each generation to, uh, you know, take possession of it and to take responsibility for it. And the severing of the link uh, that I always perceive to be the case between transparency, which is what we journalists strive to offer, uh, uh, transparency, independence, critical thinking, and some sort of accountability in our political system. To me, that is the crisis that is affecting both journalism and politics. Where was the accountability for any of the actions in the last few years? We're about to go into not one, but the second impeachment trial of a president. Uh, it's very, very likely to end in his acquittal. Where's the accountability for the shocking actions that led to the storming of the United States Capitol for the first time since 1814, during the War of 1812. You know, individual people who went in there, we now have this massive FBI manhunt, they're gonna go to jail, they're gonna be trials. Uh, where's the accountability for the people in suits who were the ones who ultimately, whose rhetoric, whose media platforms led them to that moment? I don't have an answer for that, but I think that is the explanation in part for why we're facing this tremendous crisis of confidence and trust right now in our society. So uh, another question, again, with respect to journalism and media is the role and the challenge that social media presents to more traditional journalism, but also this notion of consideration of objectively of facts and using it to build a point of view. Uh, how do we restore trust in, in the profession of journalism, you know, more formally defined when people seem to be increasingly getting their information from social media, which is not necessarily, in fact, is rarely objectively verified? Yeah, I think it's a real interesting uh, dilemma here. And I think the problem is that, uh, you know, it is hard to know what to trust, right? And that's why legacy news organizations and new news organizations need to build a record of factual, reliable, trustworthy reporting. And when we get things wrong, and we all do because we're human, we need to you know, correct things. And uh, I think that's you know, something that's different than social media. And I think people, the consumers need to take some responsibility here too, right? Because as consumers, we all need to think about where we're getting our information, what's trustworthy and what's not. Social media by itself can be a great thing because it is a proliferator of information, but you have to be careful to understand where it is. We teach our son, don't trust everything you see on, on, on the internet or on social media until you know where it comes from. And if it comes from a brand name that has a record of accuracy and, and reliability, then that's one thing, you know, I, and I would put the New York Times and New Yorker in that category and, and many others, but be careful to know where it comes from. And so if there's a consumer uh, angle of this as well as a producer angle of this, I think that we need to think about. Uh, 
finally, um, could James Baker succeed at all in this in current, current environment, uh, given what we've just been talking about, uh, the fragmentation of politics, but also the fragmentation of information sources? How would James Baker succeed in this setting? You know, it is the question in many ways, and it is one that uh, we've wrestled with uh, without having a definitive answer. Look, the bottom line is that certainly uh, in terms of his own career, Jim Baker would succeed because he's wired for success. Uh, and I have no doubt uh, that he would have flourished in this or any era. Uh, he was uh, an accidental creature of politics, however. And uh, so it's very unlikely in many ways uh, that he would have entered uh, politics in Washington if it weren't for his relationship with George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, so, uh, you know, the truth is, is that the country's polarization and gridlock, it predates Donald Trump. It's going to post-date Donald Trump. But we did come away from this long study of one individual, very exceptional American life, I think, with a renewed sense that individuals do matter. And the bottom line is that uh, the story of this period in American politics is, is definitely shaped by Jim Baker and his accidental presence, presence at, the, at the height. So I, I, I remain an optimist uh, that individuals matter and that outcomes can differ as a result of them. Peter, Susan, thank you. Uh, and thanks for doing this. The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. I honestly, sincerely, and forcefully recommend it. It is a great way to understand modern politics, modern diplomacy, where we were and where we've come to. So thanks very much. David, I'll turn so it back much. to you. That's wonderful. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Mark, thanks very much. And uh, let me salute, I think, two of the best in the business, uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Thanks very much for taking the time. This podcast is produced by Patrick McCann and Justin Kessler. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell your friends, or leave a review.